0: And now, let's talk. You're listening to the Cambridge Black Lives Matter series. This is an initiative by students at the University of Cambridge and Anglia Ruskin University to show their support for the Black Lives Matter movement, despite the limitations of lockdown. We hope that what follows is thought-provoking and educational, and further resources are available in the programme description. This is Cambridge student Majola Akinyemi interviewing New York Times best-selling author Michael Denzel-Smith following his talk at the Cambridge Union on police brutality and racism.
1: Um thank you again, Michael, for um coming to speak to us today. So I just have a few questions um for you about your sort of view on um essentially sort of policing policing in America. Um so as we heard in the panel discussion we just had with the Cambridge Union, um you are very strongly sort of anti um police reform, you're more police abolition, is that correct?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: So- what would be your reaction to, in these protests, you have some people who are almost being friendly with police officers, so you have people hugging police officers, people dancing with police officers, not just with police officers, but with also um, sort of, I know the mayor of Minneapolis was um, invited to protest and was um, interacting with protesters there in sort of like a friendly manner. Um, I know there's been some people who are discarding this as sort of propaganda. I know propaganda like cop and propaganda has been sort of merged into this new word recently how would you feel towards this given your stance on police abolition
2: you know my my initial reaction is to look at that and just be like it's silly right like it's um and it is it's a way of sort of ingratiating these good feelings toward police officers um you know And it's born out of this idea essentially that what we have to do is like find our common humanity. We need to reconnect as human beings. And I'm not against that as a concept in and of itself, but when we're talking about it in relation to police, um, what this does is obscure that policing is not about the individual officers. It is not about whether or not they think like, you can remove, like, you could remove all of the "quote unquote" racist from policing. You could uh, get all, you could have all of the police reflect the communities that they're policing in terms of racial demographics and all those things, and you still have the same results because that's the function of policing. That is the what the system is designed to do. What the very institution's roots are, um, you know the the world's first formal police uh, department comes out of, uh, you know, the, uh, the UK. It's a, the London Metropolitan you know, Police. And what they're meant to be is a inexpensive alternative to the military in order to suppress uprisings in Ireland, <laughs> right? Like that's the origin of this, this thing. And then you transport that to uh, the US um and they do they perform similar functions they suppress labor uh rebellions in northern cities uh they're a part of their the slave patrols in southern cities like that's that's the core of what policing is and then you just like sort of build upon that as social and economic conditions change uh who gets policed more heavily just depends upon like how you're trying to enforce those hierarchies of uh, racism and capitalism, uh, and so to to try to then make it an an, an indiv- you, when you try to individualize the issue as if you can reach a cop and like they'll be better at being a police officer if they have more empathy or compassion or what have you. Well, you haven't changed their job. Like they just the job description. All you then have is quote unquote, good people doing a destructive and harmful job. Uh, and that's not what we want. That's, that's, and that's, that shouldn't be the world that we're, we're looking for. Um, so we have to get away from that, the, the sort of, like, the cuddliness with the idea of police because uh, it's it, the only way to, that that is meaningful is all of this dancing with police or hugging police or whatever. The only way that's meaningful is that the police quit after that.
1: I know that... In your um, in your book, Invisible Man Got the whole world watching um, You discuss how the deaths of black men Such as you know, Trayvon Martin And Michael Brown have become so Widespread in public knowledge Like the quote, racism isn't getting worse It's getting filmed Do you think that we're becoming desensitised To watching black people be brutalised And murdered on camera And perhaps how this could possibly be damaging To the cause, it's like when people were lynched And um, this would be spread apart And sort of postcards and stuff. Do you think we're entering a new era of that?
2: This is an interesting question. I don't know to what degree I even think about whether people are being desensitized to it um, as much as I don't watch any of the videos anymore. Like I just can't stomach it for myself. Um, it's not good for me and <laughs> uh, my, my sort of psychic energy and emotional uh, care, to watch any of these lynchings um, on video. Um, But I do think about what the proliferation of these videos means in terms of uh, turning them into another form of uh, entertainment in a way, right? Like they're being consumed as such or being consumed as a... As a way of signaling uh, your your belief that Black Lives Matter, right? Like you, as some someone who is non Black, watching this and consuming it, and then that being a a measure of how how much you believe in the idea that Black Lives Matter, when what you're consuming is just the constant barrage of Black death. whether or not that's engendering any actual empathy, whether or not that is producing uh, moments of real reckoning and self-interrogation and whether you're in your complicity within systems of oppression, um, whether or not that means uh, that you're committed to dismantling those systems or if it's just producing in the largely the white people who are watching this sort of horror, but distance, right? Like it, it reinforces that they have distance from that reality, right? Like that it is over there, that it's filmed over there, that it happens over there. And that, you know, it's, that it, it needs, it doesn't need to go beyond their acknowledgement of that, Um That's what I think about more. I don't know. I don't know how much people are being desensitized, but I don't think that it's helpful at all to continue to consume Black death in such a way.
1: How damaging do you feel that this sort of exceptionalization of the police force, where they have um, sort of immunity from their actions, where they're one bad member is seen as sort of a bad apple in the bunch rather than, you know, the whole thing being rotten. How damaging do you think that is to society where we're sort of told that police stop violent crime when often they can be perpetrated the violent crimes, such with like domestic violence and sexual violence?
2: I mean, it's totally damaging. It 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 it, it, it reifies this sort of like a stance of police um or the imaginary of police, right? Like the idea that police are heroes, the police are the only thing separating us, separating us good people from the bad people and therefore chaos, right? Um, That it is only the threat of violence from police that uh, keeps things in order. Um, And the problem is that that's stunts our imaginations when it comes to actually dealing with the the harms that we're concerned about right like i mean there's there's two parts to that right like one the function of the police being that they are defenders of capital they are defenders of wealth and they reinforce or enforce uh you know racist laws in order to shore up a white supremacist ideology and institutions and then also that they've been enlisted in uh crime prevention uh when so much of what's considered crime obviously there's there's things that just i believe should be decriminalized um and not considered crime in the first place but the things that you know we can put on the books is like murder rape robbery um so much of that ha- like has nothing to do with whether or not there is the threat of violence from the state on the table. Like people do those things, not uh, they're, they're not born out of uh, simply just an, an innate um, violence within the human beings, right? Like these are either things that are learned or things that are crimes of desperation or things that are, you know, um, forms of violence that are used as sort of measures of protection or what have you. There's just, a lot, there's lots to, to unpack there about like, and we don't get to that, right? Like we don't get to why does someone kill someone? Why does someone rape someone? Why do these, these things happen? How can we prevent that from happening in the first place when on the back end, you just threaten people? You just say, you do it and then we'll send the police after you. Um, And then we get in a situation where people don't admit to doing those things because they're afraid of the punishment that comes on the other side. And so we have no measures of real accountability for these things that for these harms that actually happen. Um, So the the police taking up so much space in our imagination of what a safe society looks like, of what are some taking up so many of our resources, so much of city budgets and and being, you know, overfunded by, uh, you know, on the national level and and enlisted in so many of the social ills that we want, we say we want solutions for, but we just throw more police at it. Um, Police don't have any tools to do that. but if they are, if we keep saying that they're heroes, they 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 save us from everything, then we we're free, you know, we're free to, in our complacency, right? We're free to remain complacent. We we don't have to challenge ourselves to think differently about how to uh, mitigate any of those harms.
1: I know that you you um, are saying certain things should be decriminalized, but things that we still hold as sorts of being morally ha- reprehensible, so such as you know violence um, towards innocent people, how would we tackle that within our communities without the sort of oppressive force of the police within them?
2: Yeah, I mean, that there's so many people doing that, that work now who are imagining things differently, right? Like, there are people who are uh, violence interrupters, right, that are community-led and staffed organizations of people that understand, like, there are there's violence that happens within our community. We'd like it to stop. We would like for people to not be fighting one another, not be shooting one another, all of this. And they, they are trained in nonviolent ways to interrupt that kind of violence and to help get some conflict resolution. Um, I mean, there's, I forget exactly what city it is, and there is just this group of uh, mothers who knew that if they sat outside while it was dark, the people, the young people who were responsible for a level of violence that was disrupting the neighborhood, if those mothers just sat outside and were together, it dissuaded those young people from commi- like engaging in any violent behavior, and those are things that just don't require people with guns. Like they didn't; have, they weren't armed. They just have respect from the from the community, right? And that's something that's earned by being in conversation with one another. And I think that that's really what it comes down to is we have to stop seeing ourselves as individuals and view ourselves as parts of communities. And, those, and when, you, when you do that and you're committed to building a strong community in which people talk to one another, people know each other, people are part of each other's lives, you can settle conflicts in different ways and you, you prevent that from getting to that point in the first place. And then, you know, look, I'm not suggesting that there's some perfect world in which no one ever gets hurt, Um, But when you've built a community like that, then you can come to one another and you can say, look, this person has done me this harm. Uh, And as a community, you can offer a response to that. You can go to that person that's committed the harm and say, you've done this. How are you going to make it right? How are you going to make your victim whole? And then not only that, say to that person, get that person to understand why what they've done is wrong so that they're not doing it again. And so you're setting models for accountability that have nothing to do with punishment, but deeper understanding and deeper care. And I think that that's really like what we have to, to understand is that we're not just saying that Punishment doesn't work. We're saying that like deep love and care do, and we have, and we can't, we can't continue on this path in which like punishment is the only viable solution for people. They have to be offered alternatives.
1: The problem doesn't just begin and end with the police. We also have the issues of sort of the judicial system being systemically mm-hmm. racist as well, and also the issues of ma- mass incarceration and. Um, prison labor, which is essentially the new form of slave slave labor, if you look at the um, 13th Amendment to the American Constitution. I'm just wondering, how do you think we can tackle these issues alongside abolishing the police?
2: The idea of police abolition is deeply tied with prison abolition. It's sort of this movement during 1970s uh that looks at the criminal legal system in the u.s and says you know this is fundamentally unjust the way that we deal with these things and you know this is this is in the time before like mass incarceration and the you know the the prison population at that time if I'm not mistaken was somewhere in like the 300,000 range and people were just like that's way too many and now it's over two million and it's like well you didn't listen back then and now it's exploded right um and 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 yeah they're they're deeply tied they're they're it is a suite of like carceral logic, right? Like the idea being essentially that if we punish people harshly enough, they will act the way that we we want them to, right? Like they will not engage in the behaviors that we want them to. Uh, Well, that's just fundamentally just just, just wrongheaded, right? Like that's just not the way things work. particularly when you're existing in a set of socioeconomic um, conditions that would make certain behaviors um, more appealing to you, right? Like drug use or drug distribution, drug sales, are not themselves uh, immoral behaviors. They become moralized. But then you don't examine the reasons that people do these things, right like uh, we can if we can go and we can look at the things that are actually we would consider immoral, like rape is immoral, right it is a violent act upon someone else's body and their autonomy and consent and all of those things uh, but people aren't dissuaded because there's going to be a harsh punishment, right? Like people are dissuaded from doing that when they understand all of those concepts of whether or not like someone's body belongs to them, right? Like that's education starts, has to start much earlier. We have to educate around like what sex looks like and what rape looks like and distinguishing between the two. And we have to break free of modes of masculinity that uh because rape is so often perpetrated by cisgender hetero men uh particularly but it cuts across like gender identity but you know most often by uh those folks we have to divorce masculinity from its its, uh, its violent nature, its need to dominate to coerce, and all of those things and that 's when you start talking about ending rape like it 's not because you prosecute a rapist like at that point they 've already raped someone right like we're, We have to be more interested in the front end and the carceral logic that 's all wrapped up in policing prisons you know, prosecution, all of that, that is, is inherently just it is by virtue of being part of a white supremacist system going to be heavily, disproportionately more violent towards racialized communities that fall outside of whiteness. Um, it it simply doesn't uh, rectify anything that that the the carceral system wants us to believe that it's rectifying. All it is is a form of social control. Um, If we were more interested in like doing those things on the front end, there would be no need for this system on the back end in the first, anyway.
1: That's really, really interesting, like getting to the root cause of why these crimes yeah. are committed rather than just punish them, punishing people that put, commit them after the fact. So I read um, in an article, it was in the New Republic written by you, that you don't believe that the police acts in a way that guarantees public safety and that people should stop sort of associating them with such. Now this is such a huge cultural shift within... Um, a society that sort of has the police on hand for everything, you know, for mm-hmm. rape, domestic abuse, mental illness, you call nine, well, in your case, you call 911, That the police officer comes and he's supposed to sort it out. Um How do you think we should sort of begin and end this sort of uphill battle of uprooting the system and replacing it with the best one focused on community and on education, overall on love? How would we?
2: Well, I mean, that's what... we're in the midst of right now that's one like it's a one of the pillars being you know what you hear now and defund the police right like we have to start with uh, like somewhere we're understanding like look the police don't do i mean look defund is itself an abolitionist demand right it's a matter it's a sort of first step it's a strategy in trying to uh, eliminate police altogether. But what you can say to people is, look, if poli- the- I can prove to you that police don't handle all of the things that you've asked them to handle well. Let's take those responsibilities away from them. Like, let's take the money that we give to them away, and like put that money somewhere else. Like, you can say that, right? Like, that's one pillar. That's, you disarm the police. You say, look, why do the police need all of these weapons? Why do police have to walk around with guns? What does that? What does that help? What does that help me? You take away weapons from police you decriminalize you decriminalize sex work you decriminalize drugs you decriminalize homelessness you decriminalize mental illness right like you make sure that these that like those things aren't being handled by the police okay so now you're just we're just taking away all of the avenues through which people like normally um call the police and and like what the police are capable of doing in those situations and so like then police should stop responding to calls from uh neighbors who have like noise complaints like and just be like that's not something that anyone that you need police officers to handle right uh that they shouldn't be dealing with uh know traffic violations like why not have someone from the department of transportation doing those things if we we gradually take those things away take those responsibilities away from the police or i would prefer swiftly taking those things responsibilities away from the police and then shifting our resources into other things you're just showing people more and more like how how futile it is to have police like it's like look they don't do anything they don't solve any problems and you're living if you, as you do that you're like you're living with less and less contact with the police and your life is fine. Like I mean, I I imagine they will be right for the most part. Um, and in the extreme circumstances where there are where there's harm done, you show people alternatives. You give them alternatives, and those systems are being built. Those those institutions are being built by people now to provide them alternatives to show them that there's a different way. Uh, it, it's it it's not something that happens overnight. Um, but look. The first, you know, sort of formalized protest against police violence happened in like 1919 here in the U.S., Um, and we're getting now to defunding the police, right? Like, it takes a long time, but there is something about this particular moment that seems rich with possibility and that there's a consciousness shift that could take place if uh, people are willing to hear truly what the police have been doing
1: i do agree i think there is a lot of protests you've seen video evidence of just very extreme police brutality and i think it's making a lot of people wake up and think what is the function of the police if they're just terrorizing people if they're not protecting like they um absolutely they said they were not i just have one final um question for you so i know that um there have been some black people and some people of color who sort of resent the phrase white privilege as they Mm -hmm. claim it causes this sort of victimization mentality um, and saying that no matter what you do you always be almost in a way hindered by the color of your skin how do you feel about the phrase white privilege and how would you feel about those saying that perhaps like black people and people of color should just simply work harder to overcome this rather than letting it hold them back
2: I I mean the the phrase white privilege I get where um I understand where it comes from I understand the framing of it I think it may be more useful and I'm I'm not I haven't thought this through but this is something that um a friend of mine is sort of uh thought about in terms of like how to get white people to understand this um that so much of what gets called white privilege uh, that we want white people to be aware of with regards to their privilege is really about like the ability to live a good life, right? Like it is their rights to a good life, right? Like the privilege of walking down the street uh, without being constantly harassed by police, right? Like the privilege of uh, you know having access to uh, clean, good foods and all like all of the, whatever this, this host of privileges, um, those are things that should be available to everyone, right? Like it's not, and I think that that may be a, a complication um, in that, like when white people are then uh, you know admonished to be aware of their privilege uh it just means that they like start to understand that they have it as opposed to understanding that they have it and wanting to extend those privileges or rights to other people um so maybe it needs some tweaking in terms of like what that framework looks like so that it's not a a measure of like feeling guilt around possessing privilege, (laughs) Um, but making white people understand that the things that they experience as privilege, should be extended to everyone else.
1: Well, that's all that we have time for. Uh, thank you so much for coming to speak to me today. Um, just a to note for our listeners, if you'd like to hear more of what my cast is saying, also just a greater discussion about police violence as a whole, there is um, uploaded on the Cambridge Union, their YouTube um, channel, the um, pound discussion from earlier on today. Um, Thank you once again, Michael. I'm just going to advertise his upcoming book, so, so Stakes is High, Life After the American Dream, coming out in September, if I'm not mistaken.
2: September 15th.
0: Fantastic. Um, thank you so much once again.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Majola Akinyemi in conversation with Michael Denzel-Smith. Do you care? Do you? You've been listening to the Cambridge Black Lives Matter series with your host, Eliza Pepper, our music is Average Girl by Cambridge student Miss Eva Johnson and her further work is linked in the programme description. But let's not end this conversation here. We would love for your thoughts or further involvement. Please get in touch via email on news at camfm.co.uk. We hope you've enjoyed our series.